Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 124 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Speaking of The Mandolin Cafe, right now on the very front page, transcriptions by Jake Howard. Man, Jake Howard, friend of the show, super nice guy. How nice is Jake? Well, he transcribed the entire Tony Rice Plays and Sings Bluegrass album for Mandolin, and he's giving it away for free as a thank you on the Mandolin Cafe. Now, you can donate if you'd like. There is a link, and I suggest you do so. That is an incredible amount of work to do, but it's right there on the front page of the Mandolin Cafe today, so go check it out, and thank you to Jake for doing such an incredible thing for the Mandolin community. Speaking of the Mandolin community and other cool Jakes, Jake Jolliffe and Grant Gordy have a brand new album coming out called Our Delight, and they are debuting a new single here, like someone in love. And that will be at the end of this episode for you to check out. It's incredible. Uh, two of my favorite players. So be sure to check that out at the end of the podcast. Thank you to Jake and Grant for doing that. Big thank you also to my newest Patreon subscriber, David O'Hulse. Thank you, David. He signed up for the entire year. You can also go to the Patreon page and support this podcast. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. Just head over to patreon.com slash mandolinsandbeer. And if you like what you're hearing on here and you can financially do so, please uh, feel free to donate to the podcast. It's super easy to do. And if you don't want to sign up and pay monthly, you can sign up annually and you can save money doing so. And it all goes to help support this podcast and keep it running. So thank you so much to David and all my patrons. And we'll be doing actually we're going to have to do two in March because I didn't realize that the last Tuesday is already this Tuesday coming up. So the next patron hangout will be March first tuesday march 1st at 9 p.m eastern time i think if that works patrons if you have a time that you think would work shoot me a message via patreon or uh, go to the mandolins of beer website and go to the contact page and let's discuss that here i'll also send out an email so thank you so much to the patrons of course just uh leaving a review following me on the instagram the facebook are also great support and things that you can do to help support this podcast so thank you very much to everyone who's done so um, Peghead Nation has done so. They support this podcast every single week. I couldn't be happier or more proud to have them. They're the best. Um, they have the streaming video courses. They have mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. Their mandolin instructor course is the best in the biz, man. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. I literally use Peghead Nation every single week, at least once. Sometimes I don't even learn the stuff. I just watch the videos of the people playing, like Mike Compton's Monroe one, watching him play those songs. It's just, just a cool thing to do. And you can do so and join for free. That's for your first 30 days, anyhow. Go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MandolinBeer at checkout. That's all one word, MandolinBeer at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, loving my octave mandolin, the archtop octave from them. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also follow them on Instagram. Great stuff. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Love the folks over there at Ellis Mandolins. Man, follow Tom Ellis on Facebook, by the way. That guy is a killer photographer and uploads some of his photos he takes every now and again. What a talented dude and super nice to boot. 
And speaking of building incredible mandolins, one of the best ways to ensure that you're doing it properly is to go to Siminoff Books. Uh, they obviously, the Bible of mandolin construction, the ultimate bluegrass mandolin manual. Uh, fourth edition just came out. It's only $44.95. It's the size of a phone book because it's got so much incredible stuff in there. Uh, 21 full-size fold-out F5 construction drawings. It's got a ton, 330 color pictures and everything you'll need to build a Bill Monroe style F5 mandolin. And as great as that is, they've also got other books. They've got the Luthier Handbook, second edition. Coming out March 1st, they have the Art of Tap Tuning coming out, second edition. So go over to Siminoff Books right now. Start building yourself a mandolin. Thank you to Siminoff Books for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you all for listening. This week is with Seth Mulder. Seth Great, great player. We talk a little bit about it at IBMA. When I got there, everybody was asking each other during the week, what are you going to see? What are you going to see? And I'm telling you, Seth Mulder's name came up so many times with the uh, incredible mandolin players that I saw there, and, and he crushed it. So let's get into this interview with Seth Mulder. Cheers, everybody. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Seth Mulder. Seth, how's it going, man? Daniel, it's good to be here. Uh, it's good to have you. You are having a heck of a week. Um, I got my Bluegrass <laughs> Unlimited this week, and there's a killer article on you in there, you and the band. Oh, thank you. And so that's exciting. And then uh, you just had, you and your wife just had your second child. Yes, we did. We Con did. It's been a whirlwind. Congratulations. And you sent me thank you. the world's most... A nice text in the middle of the night on like Sunday or whatever. I wake up Monday morning. You're like, man, I hate to do this. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> my wife's in labor right now. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish I knew him better because I'd be like, I mean, I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, your problem? What's, what's going on, man? Yeah. Like, can't you squeeze it in between feedings? Come yeah. on. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you said mom and the baby, everybody's doing good. Everybody's happy and healthy. Yeah, we're all doing good. That's great, man. How exciting was it also to get the uh, the Bluegrass Unlimited article? I would imagine you've probably uh, been a reader and a fan of that. Oh yeah, growing up as as a kid, I've always I've always had a subscription to it, and I remember reading and and dreaming one day, be thinking that man, it'd be cool to be in there, and it was it was very surreal to 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 be in there and to be included in the the commemorative issue with jd crow it's yeah very cool yeah and it's it's a really nice article you know like every now and again you see some you get little blurbs or stuff like that in there but yeah that was, yeah they they really did a nice one so kudos they did a to fantastic them. job on that they did so you spoke you talked a little bit about um uh having a subscription growing up you grew up in north dakota I did, yes. The uh, bluegrass metropolis. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It must have been crazy with the bluegrass there. <laughs> oh, yeah, so much of it there. <laughs> how did you? So how did you get turned on to bluegrass in North Dakota? Well, so it started at my grandpa uh, when I was about six. Uh, my mom wanted me to learn to play an instrument. Um, didn't necessarily have anything in mind. And I ended up starting taking violin lessons, and I didn't really take to it. I didn't really like it. It was one of those things where I was doing it because I had to. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> You know, but through the process, like my, I would spend a lot of time with my grandparents. My grandparents listened to country music, and through that, like I heard, like they listened to like old school country, like Ray Price, Hank Senior, Merle Haggard. You know, um, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that earlier 
earlier country music and there was a lot of fiddle music in there and so i was really drawn to fiddle music and so i would start listening to some of the records that my grandpa had that had fiddle music and then he also had a flat and scruggs record and a bill monroe record and that's how i discovered bluegrass and i just started you know youtube was around but it was that we had dial up at the house so trying to listen to anything on youtube was not as convenient as it is nowadays. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we, uh, I, 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 I got bit enough by the bug that I, every time we'd go to like Walmart or like books a million or something like that, I would try and find bluegrass records. And, you know, growing up there, it wasn't so much like, Oh, I'm going to go for a particular artist. I would buy whatever I could find. Like if they had Lonesome River Band or they had a lot of compilation records, which is, interesting that you'd find in walmart that had like raymond fairchild and a lot of people like that on it so it, i kind of from the beginning i kind of got an obscure taste of like traditional bluegrass it was just like a lot of the the covers from like the the 50s and 60s the not a-listers really and i just love love getting that and so when i was about 13 went to a music store and they had mandolins and i i realized it was same tune same as a fiddle and fell in love with it. Got my first mandolin at that age, and I've been playing it ever since. What kind of mandolins did they have at that music <laughs> store at the time? Did they have, was it nicer uh, ones, or was it like you know like that? <laughs> my first mandolin was a Rogue. And okay, those are yep. terrible. <laughs> yeah, those are. Yeah, I had the equivalent. I had the Johnson, no. which was the equivalent of the horrible, horrible mandolins that you could get for ninety nine dollars. <laughs> my so I had the Rogue, and then I upgraded to a Johnson because it was an F model. Oh, you know everybody wanted an F model, but it was an F model that had like the flat and scroll. It was like one hundred and fifty bucks. It was like a little bit more. Yeah, it was still not great, <laughs> but you got everybody learns on something. Absolutely. And it was it was it was interesting because there was, you know, there's not a ton. There's even less music stores up there now, but with with the internet and stuff like that. But there was, it was a search to find uh, instruments up there as far as mandolins and banjos and stuff like that. Um, there's just not a ton of it around. I, my first good mandolin was an Eastman five fifteen. That we ended up driving to Wisconsin to Dave's Guitar Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I bought that there. Oh wow, man! Yeah, I um I grew up. I was lucky with both buying music and and, and the availability of instruments. I grew up yeah. in Michigan, and so I'd go to Elderly Instruments, and you know they had a killer bluegrass selection of CDs and you know killer mandolins hanging on the wall. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina. I'm like, man, this is. I thought elderly was great. It's going to be great down there at the South. Nothing. There's nothing around here. <laughs> Not a thing. Uh, as a kid, I used to get the elderly catalogs. Oh, yeah. And like for their instruments and stuff. And I would spend hours going through just looking at the instruments and stuff in there. Loved it. It was so, it was so cool. So like there's, so there wasn't a ton of bluegrass stuff around there. So like, to, to finish answering your question, so like I would I would listen to the music and and stuff like that, and then every now and then there was a couple local bluegrass bands, and every now and then they'd be, there'd be a bigger bluegrass band that would come through because there's like a, a bluegrass association of North Dakota and there's jams and stuff, but it's just not as prevalent as as it is I guess I would say not even the South because like I had this growing up I had this idea that everywhere in the South there was like jams at every Hardee's on Friday night <laughs> right <laughs> it's just 
you know, you see things, you watch a documentary about old time or bluegrass music and they they're going to the hardy's or the barbershop and jamming and so i had this idea in my head that that's what it was like everywhere in the south and unfortunately i learned that it's not necessarily like that everywhere no no for <laughs> sure <laughs> but um we had some bluegrass stars so one of the records one of the cds that i found was del mccurry i was i've been drawn to del mccurry since i, I got his first cd the one with nothing special And so I've Ronnie McCurry. I remember getting the Ronnie McCurry mandolin DVD and just absolutely wearing it out. Just loved, loved everything about that band, the sound, Dell singing, everything. And when I was about 15 or 16, um, the uh, the radio show. It's um, oh, I'm trying to think here. Give me a second to think. It's the radio show from Minnesota. Chris Steely took it over. Oh, um, Prairie Home Companion. Prairie Home Companion. At the time, Prairie Home Companion was doing a – where they do like a tour thing where they'd host the shows in different towns. And they came to Grand Forks, North Dakota. And it just so happened that their guest we saw in the newspaper was going to be Del McCurry. And I was like, well, that's super cool. And we found out that morning of – didn't know anything about it beforehand – and I remember call like my mom calling to confirm that Dell was actually going to be there, and that was it because it was there wasn't really much advertised about it. And they found out, and they had a few tickets left, and we ended up getting front row seats to to, to see it. And I remember getting to watch Dell, and they only did like three or four songs. They didn't do a ton, but it was it was enough to it it bit me, man. I I saw them. And fell in love. It was so cool getting to see them live. And I remember afterwards hanging out. This is why I'll always be a Del McCurry fan. I remember hanging out afterwards. You know, I was just a kid. And I remember they'd all, everything packed up. They'd cleaned up. There was one stage hand guy. It was like, I was like, hey, you know, is the band going to come out afterwards and talk to anybody? Because there wasn't a record table or anything set up. And he's like, I don't think so. They're doing a meet and greet downstairs. But he's like, you know, I'll go. I'll go let them know that there's someone that would like to meet him. And it was like 45 minutes later and believe it or not, Del McCurry came up and met me. I got my picture with him and it's literally something I'll remember forever. It was, it was the coolest thing. It was like how to treat your fans. One Oh one. That's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Oh yeah. They're the best man. Awesome folks. Love them. So then at that point, you got that Ronnie McCurry DVD. Did you have a teacher or anything like that as well, kind of helping you out? Or was you, were you self-taught? You know, not really. Like, I took I took violin lessons up until I was about 15 or 16, and then I took guitar lessons. But up until that point, I'd mainly just been – there was there wasn't any mandolin teachers really. Um, there wasn't as much Skype lessons or anything like that. So there was a couple banjo teachers and stuff and, like, guitars, but there was really a lack of mandolin instructors. So everything I learned that point – was just from any violin lessons that I kind of transferred over and just like books and, and DVDs and stuff like that. Yeah, that's so. So then how did you take that and go to school? Because you went to school, the uh, Kentucky School of Bluegrass. When I, so I would 
I, I had enough kind of, I would, I would say experience just kind of learning off those DVDs and stuff like that, that I used that enough to go to school in Kentucky. And that was a big turning point for me. Cause like I had never really been around as many pickers and stuff like growing up, we would, there's a few bluegrass festivals we go to. And then Minnesota has a pretty big bluegrass scene, you know, considering there's the uh, Minnesota bluegrass and old time music association, which is called Mabatma. And they had uh, a, quite a few, they had a big August festival and they had a spring festival they had two winter festivals, and I would usually go to them every year. And jamming and playing around with other people was really what helped me grow a lot. Just, I mean, the importance of jamming with other people and getting to play with other people was huge that helped me grow. And then so after growing up and doing that, I would kind of realized that I wanted to try and go to school for music. And there really wasn't. I debated between ETSU and the Kentucky School of Bluegrass, and I, I chose – the Kentucky School of Bluegrass for Traditional Music because I was like, well, if I decide I want to keep doing it, I'll go ahead and transfer over to ETSU. And so I went went down there and, you know, I got to study with Bobby Osborne and Curtis Birch was teaching there at the time. And it was a really cool environment to learn in. But at that point in, in my playing, I was, you know, my heroes were like Chris Steely and and ronnie mccurry and stuff like that and it was a little different than the what, what bobby or what curtis t- taught so it was uh it was a cool opportunity for me to learn some different stuff um and kind of change directions and channel what i was learning did you get the uh Thiele instructional dvd as well I did, man. If it, if Homespun put it out, I had it. Yeah, I got Elaine a stack Benson. of all those. <laughs> yeah, me too, I man. <laughs> Sierra Hall, man. Yeah, that was – Christmas time came. That was pretty much what I asked for. Were you playing gigs at all yet at that point, like in North Dakota before you go to school? Yeah, so at that point, me I, – so I grew up – I grew up playing gigs at kind of a little – a young age. I would go around and play nursing homes. Um, me and my grandpa would. Oh, cool. Um, my grandpa played, learned to play bass later on in life just so, you know, because he, he enjoyed the music, so he kind of taught him to play bass. And so him and I would go play shows at nursing homes that started out. And then as, as it gradually picked up, we'd go out and play small festivals and stuff like that. And then eventually, about when I was like 17, 16, 17, we had a little bluegrass band called the Goose River Boys. Oh, neat, man. Yeah, it was like it – was, so it was me, my grandpa – um, a buddy of mine, Steve Simonson, and a guy named Dwayne that played banjo. We kind of rotate. I mean, there wasn't a ton of bluegrass players, but we had fun at it. We we really enjoyed it. And it was a it was a great experience for me to kind of get bitten by the bug to to know that hey, this is what I want to do. I, I love playing music. I love playing on the road. I loved everything about the, about it. So what kind of stuff were you guys doing? Were you were you doing like the traditional stuff? Were you sneaking any of the newer, like the Thiele sort of style stuff in there? You know, at that point, I was I was doing some writing and stuff. It was a lot of traditional, but like more northern inspired traditional stuff. Like uh, I, I found that like the bluegrass and stuff that they listen to up north is a little different than like what you'd expect and it's not as much flat and scrubs but more like jim and jesse stuff
listen to a lot of Jim and Jesse um more like I guess 60s bluegrass but so we would do that I mean I did a ton of classic country stuff just because that's what a lot of people played and that's what a lot of people like to hear so we try and bluegrass some classic country stuff I mean I would do old rock and roll songs bluegrass um and then I would just do some traditional stuff rolling my sweet baby's arms salty dog blues stuff like that stuff that you'd hear on the Andy Griffith show and then you go down to, or you go, yeah, I guess it's down to Kentucky, right? So yeah, down to Kentucky, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to school there. And then what was, you know, what was the the plan after finishing school? And, you know, what you was know, the game plan? The plan after finishing school, you know, I I was still trying to figure everything out. I knew I wanted to play music. I wanted to either play music with a band or with somebody. Um, so I went to school and that's when I kind of grew more musically. I I was more around around more like-minded musicians. And so I would, I was able to kind of do some of the more progressive stuff at that time, I guess I would say that I was trying to do. Um, and I would do that in school. And then I played with a couple local bands throughout there. And then we did the, I guess the, the pride band version of the Kentucky school of bluegrass. I was in that a couple years. And so we'd get to, do tours with that so i got to do it was like the head the main school ensemble which was five students and then we'd go out and we it was right during that time when they were doing the masters tour so it was jd crow and bobby osborne doing this masters tour yeah and so we got to go and we got the op- the school got to open for them oh and so that was super cool yeah. i you know, I, I, you you look back in those things like I do, and I was like, I was like, oh wow, that was really cool that we got to do that. I, at the time, you you you'll sometimes take things for granted. I know I did. I'm looking back, I was like, that was really cool. We got to do that. We got to, we did a tour up into Wisconsin. We did a tour over in Virginia, and you know, it was cool. We played beforehand. Then JD Crow would come up, and then Bobby Osbert come up, and then they do a big. Uh, group will the circle type thing at the end and so i got to go on stage and play with bobby osborne and jenny crow it's super cool oh that's really cool what's what What are some of the the lessons you learned um on the road for the first time as a guy who's like traveling and playing music like what are some things that you uh discover that you may not have known when you when you first headed out you know the importance of being easygoing and easy to get along with you know, it's, it's, if, if you're, if you're easy going, you're easy to get along with things will go so much smoother on the road for you and for everybody else. Um, because you know, no one wants any excess drama with it. Um, it's just, yeah, no one needs it. Remember the, uh, the first time I ever had moonshine, uh, <laughs> was, was on, uh, Bobby Osborne's bus. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great, man. Was it good? It, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, it was, it was good. I remember we were playing in Virginia and I was, I was, a I was a curious college student and I was sitting on the bus and I remember Dana cup who was playing banjo with Bobby at the time. 
pulled out this jar of shine out of his bunk on the bus. And he's like, you want some? And I was like, yeah, I do. And I was, that was kind of a, a cool memory that of all the things that I remember, I remember doing that. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it's like a, that's like a rite of passage almost. It really is. It really is. The, and it's uh, and it's it's weirdly foreshadowing because then you end up picking up some gigs at Old Smokey. Yeah. So how does how does that come about from from Kentucky to um, moving to the Old Smokey area? Yeah. Well, so after college, so I graduated, and I guess it would have been two thousand and. 11, 12-ish. So in the summers while I was in college, me and some friends of mine, um, and one of them being Jasper Lorenzen, uh, who plays with the Poor Ramen Boys. So him and I went to college together, and we had a band um, that we would go. It was called Flicker to Holler, and we would go and play our summers in Gatlinburg. They had this Tunes and Tales program. It was just a summer music program, and we were all looking for something to do. We all wanted to play music, and so we're like, yeah, let's go live in Gatlinburg in the summers. So we would do that in between um, summer seasons at school. We'd go down there and play. And there was a, at the time, it was a growing, and it still is, a growing music scene in Gatlinburg. And so we would go do that, and we fell in love with the area. And then after college, um, I would still go down there in the summertime. After college, I moved to Indiana where I met my wife. And we were we were living up there, but we would still go down to Gatlinburg in the summertime and play music. We always get a cabin and that Till when she graduated college, we decided to uh, move to Gatlinburg and see what we could do. Does your wife play music? Oh, does your wife play music as well? No, she plays piano a little bit, but no, she just she enjoys it. She just doesn't play. Oh, OK, cool. Um, and we uh, so we moved to Gatlinburg. We liked the area and started out. I was working, playing music in the summer, playing music uh you know, after work and stuff like that. And I actually got a job bartending at Old Smoke Distillery. Oh, cool. And so I started doing that. I did that for about seven months. And, you know, I would sit and watch the band, the other bands and stuff play. And I just liked it. I was just around the music all the time. And till one day, the uh, the guy that manages the bands, Matt Flake, uh, approached me about them possibly needing another band. They were having some transitions and he asked if I could put a band together. And so I did. And, you know, it's been going ever since it started out. It started out as just a, you know, a, a day job filler. We were, we were supposed to be the band that when everybody was gone, we were going to fill the spot, fill the gaps and play and started out doing that. And we had a lot of players throughout the, throughout the years come down there and, and play with me. And then, it got we we started taking it more seriously we're like hey you know this is a great opportunity to, as 
if we wanted to be a working band to really do this and use it to hone our craft. And so we, uh, I guess it really started coming together when Colton, our banjo player joined the band. He joined, he's coming up on five years ago. So when he, when he joined, when he joined us about five years ago, you know, we all enjoyed playing and we're like, you know, let's see what we can do with this. And that's when we decided to really hit it hard. We were, we were, playing at the distillery all the time and then we want to start doing some road dates and just kind of put it all together now when you say playing at the distillery all the time i, I don't know if people maybe understand how much <laughs> live music is played at the distillery i mean looking at your schedule but um maybe give people a little idea of like what a busy week yes. for you would be playing at the distillery a busy week is we're playing six days um we usually always have a day off we usually have sundays off um we play the average shift is five hours <laughs> so we're playing on average we're playing you know 25 30 hours a week yeah five hour gig yeah now how does that break down for like sets how many sets do you do in that five hour time we do five 45 40 minute sets okay cool yeah that's i mean that's that makes it a little more bearable i'd imagine it does you know it you go does. see bands in nashville and they don't they don't take breaks for hours no not at all it's crazy and they're working for tips mm -hmm. <laughs> that's it you know yeah it's when it when the idea first i was like i was like man this sounds daunting just the idea of playing for five hours but really i mean it's so easy now. I mean, I get you. It, it's it's it comes natural. Like you would think you're you'd start to get tired and you get tired of it and your voice would get tired and you just get burnt out. But really, I mean, I've been doing it since 2000 and maybe 15, I guess, coming up on eight years. Oh, wow. Um, And for me, really, I mean, I've not burned out on it yet. You You have days where you don't love it every day. But for the most part, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed being able to do it. What's what's the time of the shift usually? What's like the latest you end up having to go to? I mean, it's so it's they're either twelve to five or five to ten, five to eleven on the weekends. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, good. that's it's bearable. That's the the nice thing compared to Nashville. I mean, if you're playing if you're playing Broadway in Nashville, you know, three four o'clock in the morning. That's you know that's the late shift, but so. For us, that's something I've always been thankful for, just to to know that, you know, I live, in, I live about 45 minutes from work, so I'll be home by midnight most nights. That's great. I've never been to Old Smoky there. Is it yeah. pretty busy, like, the whole time you're playing? Is it kind of like a tourist destination? So, with it is it is definitely, most definitely a tourist destination. Old Smoky Distillery is the most visited distillery in the world. Wow. Yeah, so... And, and with that, you know, the Smoky Mountains is a huge it is a huge tourist destination. It's one of the most visited visited national parks. And I think last year they saw something like eight million people. Don't quote me on that. There's eight million people come visit the national park last year. Um, and it, you know, it's it's a small town that's at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And I'm trying to think of something you'd. You know, some people would compare it to like, have you ever been to Myrtle Beach? Oh, yeah, it's an hour and a half north of me here. So, yeah, so it's the Myrtle Beach kind of of the Smoky Mountains um, with that. Uh, but music and moonshine's a big part of this area. And so um, with us playing at the distillery, we on average, you know, there's there's a they call it the holler. So there's the stage in the center as people walk in through it 
headed to the distillery to go visit and taste and stuff like that. Then it's filled with like rocking chairs. And so it'll hold probably about 200 people. Um, so yeah, it holds it, 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 it'll sit a decent crowd. And especially if it's on the weekends or on nights, if it's, I mean, when it's busy, I mean, there'll be standing room only and there'll be people sitting out there listening, but yeah, it, like right now, it's the slower season. It's always a slow season in the wintertime. But once summer hits, I mean, it's busy there all the time. And you've got a road, you've got five different audiences because it'll change out every, every, every set. Oh, man. That's nice. Yeah. It's, it's a, and it's a great opportunity, like I was saying earlier, for us to try out new material, to work on our stage show, try new songs. Um, and it's just a great opportunity for us to us to practice on a real life audience. When was it when you decided, you know, like obviously you could do that gig. Yeah. You know, forever, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're crushing it there and you guys are a great band. But when do you decide, hey, you know what, we should really try and maybe test this out elsewhere where, you know, we're a tight band. <laughs> well, when when all the kind of pieces. So Colton joined about five years ago. Um, then after that, our bass player, Max, and then shortly after that, Ben, our guitar player, joined. Um, and there was just – we all meshed together really well. Um, it was – then we started doing music outside of just like covers. We were doing some original music, and we all had a love for traditional bluegrass, but we we we, we had the ability to play other stuff, but we liked doing traditional music because that's what we liked. Um, and, and, you know, we – the crowd's reaction really liked it. We'd been asked – you know, we've a lot of people go through the, the holler. And so we had been asked to go play a couple festivals and we'd done a bluegrass cruise at that point, just some, some smaller things. And we had really good reactions when we went out and played. So we're like, you know, maybe we should go try and do a few more festivals. So we gradually started adding more festivals, adding more gigs outside of that area. Um, and until we are now, and then, you know, we signed with a label and got some music out on, out on the radio and, it, everything's really taken off. Yeah. When I went to a IBMA, I swear I had more people say, you got to go see Seth Moeller if you want oh. to hear some hard driving bluegrass, man. Oh, dude. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Absolutely. That's, that's and, and they were right. And I definitely heard um, a couple of like bigger wigs that were walking around. Um, well, I don't want to say their names just because I don't think they want me saying their names, but they were talking about some of the bands that blew them away, and your your name, your band's name was one of them. So, oh, that's awesome! I thought it was awesome to hear, and I mean, absolutely uh, well deserved for sure. And there's a lot of music at IBMA. <laughs> there, there is, there is a lot of music, and we've we've always IBMA has always been really successful for us, and we've and I, I was. I always like to, to, to remind people the importance of IBMA and just going because it, it's a great opportunity for for new acts to go out there and get a chance to be seen. You know, we've we've had more success with going to IBMA for helping ourselves grow than any other convention. We always love getting to be a part of it. Now, did you put out – you had a couple albums that are on your website that yes. are just on your website. Was that kind of just to play music or to have stuff to sell when you're playing at Old Smoky? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Smart. we 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 put out uh you know because that's that's the biggest thing I mean, and that's kind of what helped us uh, along because you know we had we had all these people to that we we're seeing we needed some music to put out so we put out a live project it's called Hits from the Holler 
and it's just all the stuff that people like to hear rocky top Dooley, um doing my time just just a lot of the standards that we get a lot of requests for here playing and then we as we started playing more together we had i guess it was during COVID. COVID hit we had all this downtime and we were planning on doing another record and then COVID hit and like well we've got all this town time so we put out the traveling kind record of Chicago Think about my home in Tennessee Think about mom and my papa And I wonder if they still think of me We went and recorded that all all kind of when, with our downtime and, and put that out and that's just got a lot of songs that we like doing some of the stuff that people requested. There's a couple, you know, original stuff on there. Um, and that was just kind of a project that we've been wanting to do and we finally had the opportunity to do it. You know, we weren't we weren't super busy. We had the time to do it. We had the songs put together, and we recorded that at, at uh, our buddy Troy Boone's house. Oh, okay. dude, that album sounds great. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and your mandolin breaks, man. Holy oh. moly! So oh, thank you, good dude. I mean, they're oh, thank like you. fiery but tasteful at the same time. I mean, you can tell oh, you can thank you, burn man. it up. You know, but you never, you never take away from the song, which is, yeah, I'm always like, man. I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what was the, uh, what was the axe you were using on that one? So that one was a 2001 uh, Danny Roberts signed Bush model. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was my main, that was my main axe. It was on that one and the, the hits of the holler record. Um, that was my main axe I used for probably the last five years. I took it over to Europe with me twice. Um, absolutely love that mandolin. And the only reason I got rid of it was because I liked the one I've got now better. Uh, but I, it, it's not like that one ever did anything wrong. I just <laughs> fell in love with the, the gill. Dude, you, um, I'm looking at the picture on your website, by the way. Oh yeah. It's got that Sam Bush model on there and man, oh man, the pick wear on that buddy. I mean, you could tell you played it. <laughs> That's... When, I, when, I, when I got that, it looked brand new. Did it really? <laughs> yeah, I love it, looked, it, man. It looked brand new, and it started. I'm. I remember we were over. It was the first time we went over to uh, to Europe or over to England, and I'd got it shortly beforehand, and I it didn't. I didn't have it. Used to have a pit guard, but I'd taken the pit guard off, and because it's a little weird for me to mount with a pit guard how I play. I, I like what they do, but I, it doesn't always work well for how I play. And so I remember taking the pick guard off and over there, and I, I remember I got it like the first couple scratches because when I when I mount, my fingers kind of dig into the top. And, uh, you know, I've tried to avoid it, but it's just it just happens. It is what it is. And I remember getting a few scratches. And I was like, man, you know, I really need to try and fix that, try and stop it. It looks so nice. Like literally it looked – it looked brand new when I got it. The person I got it from hardly ever played it. And so I was like, man, I don't want to mar it up. And <laughs> about halfway through that tour, it had a bunch of other dings. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about it. And then to, to when I was, when I finally got rid of it, I mean, it had a hole almost in the top. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I had played a lot. I, I'd, I'd actually had right, 
I got to the point where I was worried about going through, and I was like, man, this is because like if I, with how much we were playing, like I was playing it five hours every day, so it was it was getting played a lot, and I was like, I don't really want to put a hole through the top. So Lynn had made me this clear pit guard on there that I'd kind of that just kind of it wasn't even sticky. It was just kind of like the old. Um, I remember what the Collins mandolins in their display booth used to have this like sticky pit guard that you could put on and off, but they uh, it would it just stuck on the top, and I remember putting that on just to prevent any further wear because I was like <laughs> at that point I knew I I didn't want to put a top, hole in the top, but it looked cool. I loved how it looked, and I'm like I got I got it to play. Yeah, oh that's so funny. Now, do you guys play? Do you play on or around mics all the time? Uh, yeah, we are the single mic. The single mic thing is pretty much how we do it um certain shows like at, at the holler we just use one single mic some of our festival shows we'll do two pencil mics on the side um just to space everything out a little bit but yeah pretty much everything's done around that single mic um you, now you mentioned the gill that you uh, you got we might as well let's let's talk about that gill um, all it's, right, it's all on right. the mandolin mondays uh um video and but uh let's yeah when did you get that and what are all the deets let's see i got that in 2020 april of 2020 to be exact it's one of those things you you remember your first deal <laughs> uh, um i bought it i put out an ad on mandolin cafe um and you know i've wanted a gill for a while i wasn't in really in my budget to get an f model but i was like you know what if i found a great a model gill I'd consider it. And I put out an ad and I was put that I was looking for a Gilchrist, a possibly a Dune Bossel, and a Duff A. Um and no one, no one, I didn't get any responses except for one. Um I someone had that gill. No there no one was really selling anything at the time. And a guy up in Virginia, a guy named Thomas up in Virginia, um Send me an email. He's like, "Hey, I've got this gill. I wasn't really going to sell it, but I was thinking about it. Now that you, I seen this article. If, if someone was in the market for it, I'd consider getting it. Sent letting it go. And he sent me pictures of it. And I kid you not, like, I was going to get a custom mandolin built a few years ago, and I had all these samples in my in my phone of, I had a whole folder of what I would want for a custom mandolin. And, I love it, man. <laughs> and I, the the custom mandolin that I would have gotten would have had a one piece back. It was going to be blonde. I've always loved blonde instruments. And I wanted bonding around the F holes and all this stuff. And it was this mandolin. I actually had a picture of that mandolin. I don't think it's the same one because Gilchrist made a couple of those. Um, but as that example in there was one of the mandolins that I'd wanted to base off for a custom mandolin. It, it had everything I wanted. It had the one piece back, the bonding around the F holes, the block inlays. Um and I was like, I was like, this, this is wild. I was like, I asked him to send me a sound clip and you know, it's so hard to tell from sound clips. And so I listened to it. I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to go look at it. You know, and at this point I wasn't even sure. I was like, well, I, I want a gill, but I didn't, I didn't know if anything was going to come. I didn't expect it to happen as fast as it did. You know, this was, this was the beginning of COVID. I mean, I was like, we weren't working at the time. So I was like, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't buy a gill, Chris. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> this might not be the smartest option for me right now. <laughs> and so uh, me and my, uh, my buddy, Jeremy Brown drove up to Virginia and he, he brought his old guitar and I brought my Bush model and we met at a sheets parking lot up there. And 
I was like, it was pouring rain. So it wasn't even an ideal situation. So I'm like huddled in my car in the cab of my truck and he's got his guitar and I'm just trying to AB this mandolin with mine. And after about two hours, I was like, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's, it's got, it's got what mine doesn't. And I knew it hadn't been played a ton because uh, the guy I got it from had a few other mandolins that he was playing. So it wasn't getting played all the time. I was like, this has got a ton of potential to open up because it had, it had that really crisp high end that gills have. Like, like you were talking about with your, with, with other mandolins, like, you know, you get that in the high end that you see them clear, crisp, high bell, like highs and that nice mid range. And it had everything. It just, like I'd fell in love with it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is it. And it had the looks to boot. It was, it was everything that I wanted in a mandolin. And so I ended up getting it from them. Um, we, we worked out a deal and I just, I, I've been playing it ever since. Was it a, was it a big change in your playing style going from an F and to an A? The biggest change in playing style for me was the necks because the Bush model has the big wide neck that I'd grown accustomed to and the gill had a very lore like neck. And that was, that was actually the main reason that I had to let go and sell my Bush model. Cause I couldn't go back and forth between the two. I, it was a, it was such a weird transition to go from the really wide neck to the smaller gill neck that I couldn't comfortably go back and forth between the two. So I, I, I ended up letting the, letting the Bush model go. Um, I even tried getting, I had the gill set up as close as I could to the Bush model. I took, I remember taking it to Lynn. I was like, Lynn, how can you make this play like the Bush model? He's like, well, I can't <laughs> add anything onto the neck. So other than that, it's as close as you'll get. As far as playing and, and stylization wise now, you know, I think it was, it was a transition time going from one to the other. Um, but you know, it, it took me there. I, I started exploring a lot more of the, the highs that, my that i could with my playing with the gilchrist because you know whenever you get a new instrument and it really excels in a certain place on the fretboard you tend to really spend time working through those areas and my gill has a really good high end so i would spend a lot more time up the neck just trying different things up there Dom, what what type of picks do you use i think I, I can kind of see it in that picture i'm wondering if you still use the same type of pick too or if you changed it when you switch models of mandolin let's see i'm I'm bad about switching to a bunch of different picks, but I've found <laughs> the same way, man. Every like I've I've found that what I what I always end up settling on is a blue chip STP fifty. Oh yeah. Um, I've played some of the bigger ones. I've I've played with the Feely pick before. I've played some of the 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 tortoise copy picks, and I always end up coming back to that smaller shape. Um, for certain things, uh, you know, I, I, I'm one of those that like for, for real fast playing that smaller shape of the STP, I really like, but for, for, you know, more mid tempo stuff, I like a thicker pick, but I can't, I found that I can't transition. I can't get the speed with the big pick. So I've settled on the small pick cause I can do both better with it. I'm at the same point right now. You know, like uh, I used to love the bigger picks or like the big triangle yeah. picks. And I still use it on the octave, but um, yeah, I've, I've, right. I've been going through more of the traditional teardrop shaped pick. I guess you would 
like a yeah. guitar pick sort of shape or smaller because I just feel the same way. Like, I don't feel like I have all this real estate to deal with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I can't, you go to do tremolo and it just feels like you have to change, you know, the yeah. position so much for, that's how I felt anyway. I'm sure it's my technique. <laughs> that's the thing. And I, you know, and I used to really get into technique, but I've also learned that everybody plays differently and what works for one person isn't going to work for everybody. So what are some things that you do? Uh, Cause your tone is really, really great. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, man. What are some things that you do to, um, to work on tone when you're sitting down? Um, you know, or standing up, however of, you rehearse. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've not thought about that. Um, I don't know. Like I've, I've, I've recently started sitting down and figuring out where I, where I place my pick in the range between like the Florida in the bridge and and where what what is a sweet spot for tone for me and i don't even think for me it doesn't come down to it's just how i play and how i draw tone out of an instrument as opposed to the particular instrument i i found that i play a lot higher closer to the florida range than a lot of players do for chop for everything oh no kidding yeah and that's something i've it's a it's a recent discovery we were on a cruise uh, a couple like back in january and uh ryan paisley was on there and we were swapping mandolins back and forth and i was just watching him play and i was like man he plays right in the center there when he chops and stuff like that and i I just got to looking at my own plane i play a lot higher up on the board than i then then i realized a lot of others players do and just that's something that I noticed that's different about how I play. And I've, especially when it comes to like chopping and stuff like that. And everybody has a different way as far as sitting down and really honing on tone. It's just, you know, I don't know what I would say that I've done to really work on it other than just, you know, sitting down and having that control and, and the setup. It's, it's about having a good setup, everything being comfortable to play. Uh, I'm at my best for me. I, I struggle picking up different mandolins and being able to play it how I would my mandolin and get the tone that I would want out of it. If it doesn't have the setup that I'm used to. Do you keep your strings high, low? Do you... I pretty low, yeah. pretty low. I don't, I don't want them to buzz, but, but right, right before that range, I like them. I like them pretty low. Um, I like a really smooth, uh, setup right now. I'm using the Diadario XT. I think it's a 74s, the medium gauge. Oh, okay, yeah. And bef- before before that, I had been using Elixirs. I absolutely love Elixir strings, and then they quit making them. Yeah, is that? Are, are they going to redo them? Uh, did, did, any idea? It's uh, so many people that were big fans of them. I mean, it, they're just gone. They're gone. I've I've asked. I've tried to find out. I, when I, when I realized that they were not, they were disappearing, I'd found five sets online <laughs> and, and, I, and I would just be like, I'd like get on Amazon wherever I could just try and buy them. And I, I was like going on eBay and trying to buy them just cause I I've got one set left. Wow. Um, and I absolutely love how they play. I love the tone and I can use this literally, I can use a set of elixir strings for two months and be fine. Speaking of uh, great tone stuff, I, I do want to talk about you did put out two singles in 2021. Yes. There was yeah. One More Night and uh, Carolina Line. Dumb, 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 
cool tunes man really cool tunes um how did those songs come about and uh is there a new album coming yes yes absolutely so one more night is a original tune that i wrote i can't bear to see another evening come one more night to lose some sleep one more night to dream about her wrote it about a buddy of mine and we we liked the feel of it and everything and we uh we've been playing a lot uh at old smoky and stuff like that and we're like yeah let's put this out and when the label decided they wanted to do that as the first single um we were stoked about it because to have a an original song be our first single we thought that was super cool and you know it everybody liked it as well as we did and we were we were excited to to see it to see the success we had with it and then with uh, Carolina Line, that was written by uh, Jerry Sally and Glenn Duncan, and Jerry sent us that tune, and it was it was a it was kind of a good balance between One More Night, and it it had kind of a different approach, a little bit more, I wouldn't say modern, but has kind of this Osborne Brothers feel to it, and uh, and we like that balance, and Colton's got his banjo tuned down to drop D, and it's just kind of a, a unique unique uh, song, and. You know, we uh, we like doing that one. Had a little bit, of, little bit of success with that. Yeah, that's great, man. They're great yeah. songs. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And then they're going to be on our upcoming album, um, on Mountain Fever. That it's going to be coming out here in the next couple of months. We don't have the exact date set up, but hopefully, um, maybe maybe around May. Oh, nice! Oh, exciting, we, man. We went and recorded everything. Uh, back in January, we've completed the record, got it all finished up. The, uh, the, actually the instrumental I did on mandolin Mondays is going to be on there. The bullhead swamp. Oh, great. I was, you know what? I was looking all over to see if there was a recorded version of that the other day. No. That's, what a cool tune. I'm excited to hear it all fleshed out with all the instruments. Oh yeah. It's we're, we're excited today. It was, it was the last one we recorded cause we were, we weren't sure if we were going to have time and we ended up, it was, it was uh, it was about midnight. We were we just finished up <laughs> the session. And I was like, oh, Mark Hodges was in there engineering some of it, and I was like, Mark was like, "Well, you got another one? You want to do that instrumental?" I was like, "Yeah, let's try it. Let's lay it down." So we laid it down and finished it up by three o'clock. And we we're out of there and done. Record finished. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, that's great. Does Mountain Fever do they have their own um, studio that they do at, or did you go? Yes. Oh, cool. They've got a studio up in Willis, Virginia. That uh that they're they're working on a nice little studio, nice little nice little environment for recording in. Yeah, that's a huge help. Yes, it is nice. And 
for my European listeners out there, you yes. got a European tour coming up as well. We do. Yes, we're going. We're going to be in Europe twice next year. We're going. We're doing a tour in May. We're going to be going to. I'm trying to remember everything off the top of my head. Yeah, but we're going to be <laughs> in the Netherlands, Belgium. We're going to be in Germany. We're going to be in Scotland, England, Northern Ireland, um, Czech Republic, and one or two others. We're going to be over there for about a month. We're going to be over there from like May 11th to June 6th. Oh, cool. Now, are you doing one of those crazy runs where you basically are playing all those shows, or do you have a a few days off to uh, take a breath and enjoy the scenery somewhere? You know, it's... It's going to be there's going to be some relaxation, you know, in the in the past, we've done these tours and I like it both ways. We did a tour back in, uh, let's see, 2020, uh, right before everything shut down. We were over in Ireland and England and we did a tour. We did 31 days and we played 29 days. Wow. And and we learned from that that we got really tired. The first (laughs) the, the first three weeks were great. And by the time it came around to go over to England, we were like, wow, we are tired. But, you know, we got through it. We had fun. So this tour coming up, we've we've we'll, we work about six days, have a day off. Oh, just cool. so just like how we would at work. Sure. And and we're I think that'll go better. And we've got a little bit we do, we do end up having a little bit more time for sightseeing and stuff like that. Um, but it's still, you know, we're driving. We're going to be in a. Uh, I guess a small van bus thing over there and we're going to be driving everywhere. And so it'll be, there'll be a lot, a lot of time on the road, a lot of driving, but it should be fun. We've been, we're really looking forward to it. Oh, it's yeah. That's great. I got to spend a month in Ireland in 2019 and I just love it over there, man. But you and me both. (laughs) Oh man. I love it. We, we've, we've gone, this will be our third time going to actually, well, we did a tour in Ireland, let's see, 2020, and we did one in 2018. And I love it over there. It's like my wife and I have talked about moving over there. We absolutely love it. Dude, my wife and I were literally looking at Airbnbs when we were there. <laughs> we were like, how can we live here for a year, don't you think? <laughs> oh, man. The same thing. I was like, I was like, man, I'd love to get an Airbnb and just like rent it. And then when we retire, move over there and just run that. Yeah, yeah no kidding. The good thing is, too, is flights out in Ireland are super cheap. Like you can get a flight for like 79 euro to Paris or London or it seems That's like you so can, cool. Yeah, you can hop out of there pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed the same thing. I was like, man, we could just you could see even if you went and spent six months over there, you could see so much of the world so affordably. Yeah, so cool. And then in July, we're going to be going over to Norway. We're doing a. There's a big country music festival that has a bluegrass band every year. They bring over a band from the States and I think, and they big, bring a big country headliner. I think this year it's Carlene Carter cash is their big American he- headliner. Then we're going to be going over there. We're just over there for five days. Oh, that'll be great though. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting, man. I love it. I, I love getting, I love the touring aspect of it. I love, Getting, going on the road and seeing different places and meeting different people. And I really enjoy the Europe stuff. Um, I've always liked traveling. So it's, 
it's cool to get to do it for work. And you guys crush a nice short set. I mean, that's the one other bonus too of like, you know, 45 minute hour set. Well, I mean, you guys are used to doing five. Yeah. (laughs) You get to take all the stuff, you know, just absolutely works and, and, and make it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I've got just a few more questions here for Go you. For get you back. First off, I got to ask you, I meant to ask him when we were talking about Old Smokey. We'll talk about beer in a minute. But do you have a favorite a favorite uh, flavor of the moonshine there at Old Smokey? I'm a big fan of their Blackberry moonshine. That's That's been a, sa- a staple since I started working there. Um, and Blackberry moonshine mixed with Sprite fantastic little mixed drink nice and i've always enjoyed enjoyed that flavor that's great i love the salted caramel yeah uh, uh, salted caramel is very good as well do that with some ginger ale and a little mm. bit of a uh, little bit of apple uh apple flavored whiskey and you got mm. yourself a caramel apple drink <laughs> nice very nice so um uh, one question i want to ask you is uh if you had 10 minutes to work on something 10 minutes a day to get better what would you work on um let's see for us and for myself, I would say speed. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. You know, I think cleanliness, cleanliness and speed. So I think they kind of go hand in hand. I think um, I, there's Colton, our banjo picker, Colton, it plays so fast. He's he's so gifted <laughs> on it that uh, I really have to find myself. I've got to keep up with him. And, like, that's something that I – try to work on and that I would like to work on more is just carrying that speed through and the cleanliness with the speed, you know, how do you approach it currently? You know, it's just starting, starting out slowly working with the metronome, um, working out the brakes slowly, stuff like that. Um, and then, but there's like, there's a threshold that, and this, this may sound odd, odd, but like, it, it comes down like I've got to be having my arm the right way and my pick held the right point in order to be able to make it out of the chute in time to get that break. It sounds, it sounds like I'm talking about bull riding or something, but like <laughs> literally like if I'm going to say we're doing, uh, let's say shucking the corn or train 45, he does that like a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> uh, we'll do that. Like I've got to have everything lined up just right to know that I'm going to make it out of there where I need to. I, I I completely understand that analogy. <laughs> yeah, and and there's days like and that and that's that's the uh, the love hate relationship with playing every day is because you do it so often, so there's more more mistakes. Like you're more likely because you're playing all the time, so there's going to be more more opportunities for mistakes um, to make. But also, there's just as many opportunities to try and fix those mistakes and to to work through it and get better at it i've found that sometimes if you if you go in there blind sometimes you'll you'll be pleasantly surprised by what comes out of it there's things that i'll play that uh that that i'll be like oh wow that was kind of cool i i hope someone was recording that because i don't remember (laughs) what i did but it was really cool oh man that's awesome that's the best feeling ever it is. It is. And that's and that's the thing, you know, I think the best thing to remember is, you know, we do this because we enjoy it. It's fun. Music is fun. And having that spontaneity and enjoyment there uh, keeps fueling it. It, it. it makes you want to continue to do it. And I think I think, you know, knowing that you can continue to keep learning, we can always keep improving and stuff like that. Like if Colton didn't play as fast as he did, I'd have no reason to keep trying to improve my speed, you know. 
and and, and having that and then find that uh find that balance and with different stuff that we play you know it's 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 nice to uh continue to keep growing musically what is the one song that you play every time that you know is just going to absolutely kill it at old smoky well um that we know that we're going to love it and kill it or that the crowd is going to love that the crowd is going to love it like what is the one i i i I can probably write down two songs that i think it might be but i'm just curious I would say Rocky Top. Yep. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was say Rocky Top or Wagon Wheel has got to be. See, Wagon Wheel has died out for us. Oh, has it really? The Wagon Wheel era is is no more. I we <sighs> haven't. We played all year, and we I don't think I played Wagon Wheel once, yeah. which is wild to think about. But Man of Constant Sorrow and and Rocky Top are strong. They're still going. Yep. Yep. That's yeah. Every the uh, Man of Constant Sorrow every time they don't even know the names. So like, you got you know that uh. Oh, brother, where art thou? Song. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, we should just do "Oh, Death." <laughs> just, That's fine. You mean this one? <laughs> no, no, not that one. <laughs> Big Rock Candy Mountain. I'm trying to figure out what your one. Yeah. What? Which one? <laughs> yeah, those are definitely our two most requested songs. I mean, for sure, Rocky Top with the history that it has in the area. I mean, it was written here and. So the yeah, that's definitely our most requested one. But you know, it's fun. I mean, we we've grown to like i mean we make tips too so we've grown sure. to like rocky top yeah man i've made my peace with the uh, i'll play whatever somebody's gonna tip me i'll play whatever they want to hear i also realize my role playing these gigs that i play a lot of in charleston oh. are like like similar to old Smokey in that you know there's tourists they just want to hear music and have a good time and um absolutely know, so i'll do whatever you know if they want to hear it i'll play it i'm not above it <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely so and then the last question do you have a favorite beer I do. I'm I'm more of a hard cider drinker, but I love Bold Rock cider. Oh yeah, that is real good. That's that's probably my favorite cider. Um, you know, as far as as far as beer goes, I like Blue Moon and stuff like that. But really, like I love Bold Rock cider. That's if that's an option, I will I always choose a cider. Yeah, good stuff, man. Mm. Well, Seth, where can everybody find you online? You can find us online at midnightrunbluegrass.com, and you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram by typing in Midnight Run Bluegrass. Perfect. Well, dude, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate it. You've had a, a wild week and that you took the time to do this. I really, I really do appreciate it. And I uh, hope to see you out there sometime again this year, Absolutely. man. I'm definitely going to try to hit a few, few uh, festivals and different things like that. So I'll keep an eye on your website. Please do, please do. It'd be great to 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 meet in person. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, thank you so much to Seth. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to head on over to that Patreon if you'd like to support. We're going to be doing the uh, Patreon hang the last Tuesday of February here. And as promised at the beginning of the podcast, here is a new release, a debut from Jake Jolliffe and Grant Gordy. Cheers, everybody. Mm-hmm.